I lose sleep over the impacts that AI will have on education inequality. You will always need human teachers, and there's actually a global teacher shortage. And the Philippines are the very few countries in the world to have a teacher surplus. The demand for our teachers is there. I mean, people value the human connection that they have with someone that's teaching them. Hello and welcome to Wise on Air, the show where we talk to some of the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Basim, producer of the show. The Philippines is an archipelagic nation in Southeast Asia composed of more than 7,000 islands. It has a population of over 110 million people, making it the 13th most populous country in the world. It is also one of the most diverse countries in terms of culture, language, religion, and ethnicity. Education is a key factor in the development and progress of any country, and the Philippines is no exception. According to the World Bank, the Philippines has made significant improvements in its education systems over the past decades, such as increasing enrollment rates, reducing dropout rates, and improving learning outcomes. However, there are still many challenges and gaps that need to be addressed, such as access to quality education and equity of opportunities. One of the pioneers and leaders of education in the Philippines looking to bridge that gap is Wise Accelerator cohort Educacion.ph, which is a social enterprise that empowers youth in the Philippines and around the world to make informed decisions about their education and career paths. Educacion.ph was founded by Henry Mott Munoz in 2013 after he realized that many Filipino students lacked access to information and guidance on their education options. Since then, Educacion.ph has grown to become one of the most successful and influential platforms in the Philippines, reaching over 10 million students across the country, while partnering with various stakeholders such as schools, governments, agencies, and media outlets. In today's episode, WISE director Elias Fulful goes one-on-one with the Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia honoree to learn more about his personal story growing up. Henry talks to us about his vision for the future of education in the Global South and some of Henry's thoughts on what AI entails in underserved contexts. Without further ado, let's jump to Elias to kick off the conversation. Henry, I'm super happy to see you. Elias, thank you so much uh, for having us. Remind me, Henry, when did you join the Wise Accelerator? You were part of, among the first batches when we started the program. Basically, we, we were learning on you. <laughs> well, we were all learning from each other then. <laughs> I remember, because so, I started Educacion in 2015, we applied to be part of the 2016 batch, and then you very kindly invited us to the, the Wise Conference in 2017. Wow. Um, so I think of it as a 2016-2017 uh, start. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to the, to the Educacion journey, but I just want to the community, get to know a little bit more about uh, the person you lived in many countries, you grew up, uh, you're half French, half Filipino, you grew up in France, obviously, the UK, Switzerland, uh, the German side of Switzerland. Indeed. And, and obviously also you, you've been spending a bit of time in the Philippines. Just how the multitude of you know, different countries have shaped you. Sure. So I, I think it's it's quite interesting. You know, we, we moved around quite a lot, probably went to a new school every two years, which, you know, got me more interested in the way education systems worked. I think the the way our parents brought us up, me, me and my siblings, was really around just keeping strong roots of both France and the Philippines, but being as open-minded as possible. Um, and I think living in these countries and going to education systems that were run by, by teachers from other countries, kind of like it forces you to understand that there's just many different ways of, of approaching a problem. And so I, I think it was a lot around expanding our horizons as children. Can you describe a bit of experience in school in different places and 
for example, what was some of the challenges or some of some of the exciting things you kind of learned and adapt in these different environments? Considering I was a child, I probably didn't have much power to, to make different education choices. But I think what was interesting for me growing up was seeing the different types of education and what they can bring to the table. I started off in a religious school, went to a Catholic school. So there was a lot of emphasis on values. Now, you know, regardless of whether these are the values that someone agrees with or whether they're tied to specific religion, it was interesting to have an experience that was as values-driven as it was academically driven. I then went to public schools where there was also a lot of values teaching, but all around like civic education, which was not about you as a person or as about a religious person, but you like, you know, your role in society as a citizen, which is a bit abstract for a 12-year-old, but it's something that really stuck with me that, you know, uh, and that's why I have a very firm belief that, you know, civic education is something we should be spending on as education systems globally. Going to public school uh, or like semi-private school I think exposed me to a pretty wide uh, range of socioeconomic backgrounds, which frankly, going then to some elitist schools did not. Probably what I always learned was whatever you were experiencing in your bubble was literally just that, just a bubble. Uh, and I think that's the benefit of moving around a lot. Uh, this was also pre-internet. So physically being exposed to as many people as possible was one of the better ways of developing you know, an understanding of how just how complex society is and how the, the same experiences live very differently based on your citizenship, your income background, your uh, your social cultural background, etc. I, I find it very, very important. Uh, I'll put it in the context of global citizenship, education, and knowing our environment from a perspective of you know the diversity that this environment have. And yeah, I, I, I consider myself a bit lucky, like you, uh, and I you know, I emphasize on the word lucky because we're a minority that have access to lots of, you know, I, I was born in Tunisia, I grew up in Canada, and I think it was one of the most amazing gifts that my parents offered me when, when they took me to Canada, because I, I kind of opened my horizon to, to a completely new world. I'm also thankful for the fact that initially they put me in, a, in an Arab school, because they didn't want us to lose, uh, you know, the roots and the language and the religion we were brought in. And, and, and so I'm, I'm super grateful for that, because that also contributed to the global citizenship. But we're a minority. And I think that that is that I'm realizing today we are a minority in the world. Well, so I think what's interesting is like not to give ourselves away age-wise, but perhaps for our generation we were more of a minority. But I think what's fascinating is, and I see this, and I've, I've been in education in the Philippines for ten years now. I would say the global awareness of your average K to twelve student in the Philippines now versus twenty or even ten years ago, it's uh, it's hard to describe. And, but I view it in a very positive way. The kind of like the cultural references, the the openness to just different ways of doing different ways societies are organized. That knowledge has changed dramatically, and that's that's one of the things that you know. If we if we do online education well, mm. it doesn't just create people who have better grades or who are better at getting jobs, which tends to be the focus of a lot of us in education. We're always like deliver better grades or deliver better jobs. Yeah, you can actually also deliver just more you know high empathy global citizens, for lack of a better term, uh, without having them leave the country. That, that is interesting. How do you see the new generation accessing Global Citizenship Forum? What, is, it, is, it, is, is it technology? It's, yes, it's through yeah. media. Yeah, it's, so, media and technology. Yeah. So it's fundamentally the, through music, through movies, through you know, TV shows, through pop culture phenomenons, through even just visually through like platforms like an Instagram or a TikTok. But the understanding and awareness is is a lot higher, and is it affecting? If you put in in a balance, the impact, how much you weight positive versus negative? 
I'm an optimist, so I'll say positive. My, my main issue often with technology is that it can very often raise perhaps not all, but most boats. The problem is it does so at, at different speeds. And so I would say that the average Filipino student is much more globalized than he or she was before. Mm. But obviously, a high-income student who lives in a very comfortable family with high-speed internet and personal devices and the ability to travel abroad, they don't just get to watch shows about what's going on in like France or the US. They actually get to travel to those countries or have business opportunities in those countries. Yeah. So it's all around, you know, the whole like the rising tide that lifts all boats mm. is just not true. It lifts boats. It, it will lift boats at different speeds. And the expansion is going to be even further with VR and AR. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, and so I think AI is fascinating. I, you know, I see the statements out there. Yes, you know, could it leave, could it lead to people individually being 20 or 30 X more productive? Of course. Uh, and that's something that's very exciting to look forward to. The question then becomes, right, but who gets access to that? Uh, and, you know, we're not, we don't live in a, a Marxist society, so we, it shouldn't be about bounding technology because it can't help everyone. But you can't have a conversation about tech and its impact on people and its impact on education without acknowledging that, well, you know, we're not all starting from the same base. And if this is going to accentuate rather than minimize differences, then what mechanisms, what rules, what funding can you put in place to counteract that and actually reduce inequality? I, I look, I see your passion about this topic, and I, <laughs> I do, I do, I do want to get back to that. Uh, I, 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 we have, we have a few questions that I want to cover with you mm-hmm. about AI specifically. Yeah. But before that, because I think if if I start with that, we will have the whole episode on it. So I, I, I just want to go through a little bit of the journey you ended up as any young, ambitious, fresh graduate in, a, in, in, in the private sector and in, in the private banking uh, sector. And then you had, you, you saw the light. <laughs> just, 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 get, just, just, just yeah. summarize, summarize the, the, the years. So it was quite interesting. So my, my father was a banker and I, I always was genuinely interested in finance. So there's some folks who might enter finance because they don't know what else they want to do, which is completely fair. I was very much a finance nerd. You know, when I was 12, I thought it was really interesting to talk about like the stock market and, you know, and on my mother's family side, um, there were a lot of civic leaders, uh, folks who had done things like fighting a dictatorship. So your, mo- your mom is uh, my mom means your dad is French. And, yes. And so basically on one hand, I had a lot of exposure to, to finance, but on the other, I had exposure to things like human rights, uh, you know, fighting for the rule of law. Uh, fighting against corruption, doing rural healthcare, doing training for low-income communities. So I kind of grew up between both worlds. I first went into finance and I enjoyed it so for, for a couple of years after doing my bachelor's and uh, at the LSE. Stayed in finance, moved on to private equity, had some very generous bosses uh, you know, at Bain Capital who told me to apply to an MBA, who sponsored my MBA. So I ended up attending Harvard for two years on a scholarship, which was wonderful. But there was always this feeling inside of me that like, well, I, I want to do something that has that's impactful. Yeah. Finance had a meaning for me. I just didn't know that I was being particularly impactful. And so I wanted to do something that wasn't just serving me, but in a way serving others. I wasn't set on education, right? I don't come from an education background. I looked at corruption. I looked at healthcare. I looked at a bunch of different things. I actually did an anti-corruption NGO. And it was only whilst I was doing that, that that I stumbled upon the potential to do something in education. And so education was actually my third act, not my second one. And so after business school and after, you know, paying off my my scholarship, I I moved to the Philippines in 2015. You went to finance 
a deep insight to please your dad or no 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 no, no, no. I, 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 I generally so it's genuine nothing okay no and, no daddy issues and you went back to the Philippines to please your mom <laughs> nope not at all okay so uh, so you you're in peace with with that I'm, level of yeah, psychology yeah. like psychology regarding I, I was never pressured to go into finance awesome and uh, and my Filipino family actually was not that keen for me to come back to the Philippines initially yeah uh, what are you doing everyone want to leave why you want to come back <laughs> Well, actually, their view was like, you know, come back with ideas, not ideals. Yeah. They're like, it's it's lovely that you want to do good, but you, you can't just come here as an inexperienced 21-year-old and yeah. try to, quote-unquote, you know, do good. That That's not enough. You, yeah. You know? um, and so they always said, look, if you want to do something meaningful, that's great. Uh, just make sure you have a real idea that you test it out, that you speak to people about it. I was never encouraged. I was never pushed in any of my choices. And that kind of formed part of the DNA of when we set up Education, our view was that fundamentally as much as possible you want to inform students about their opportunities but they need to make their own choices uh, because if someone is making their own choice they're much more likely to stay yeah. at course so you know our personal stories impact the way we create yeah products and services and companies and so in my case the fact that i had a lot of freedom in making my decisions and i had a very introspective childhood in terms of like well what do you find interesting you know what drives you etc i kind of wanted to give a little bit of that to our community Yeah, uh, in Philippines. So building agency for young people, correct, it is is important in sharing or trying to contribute to providing quality education. Yes, well, it's a, our view was always that there were a lot of existing opportunities. So we didn't view ourselves as adding an additional opportunity that didn't exist. It was about surfacing mm. existing opportunities. I've always been uh, a little bit OCD in my life. And part of what we wanted to do was just to just organize all these opportunities that exist, whether it's about universities that people don't know about or studying abroad programs or online education or scholarships or mm. career paths that are not very well known, but that are actually in high demand etc so it was it was about organizing the system rather than trying to like create a new system what are some of the challenges you see in the philippines to access quality education so i think I'll, i'll i'll give you a mix of what i think are obvious and perhaps slightly more unusual uh, factors the more obvious ones will be infrastructure you know uh, the internet is a tale of the heaven the have nots we talk about it less now because obviously massive strides were made during covid but i mean i still recall all the conversation about the digital have nots Mm. You know, back in 2015, 2016. And that was very real. You know, you'd see people who could barely get a proper phone signal in like a tier two or tier three city. And then you had others who had high speed internet and just you literally have a different life. Right? The gap is immense. Yeah. It's like having drinking water and no drinking water. Uh, you know, it's it's that, that's why the internet is used. So the first one I would say is around the infrastructure. The second one is around the, the spectrum of quality of education. I mean, so much of your education gets determined by the schools that you're in just in terms of like how well maintained and equipped they are and how much the school is able to invest in the training and in the compensation of teachers mm. and in the ratio of teachers to students. I always find it funny when people talk about teachers in a in an all-encompassing terms. I mean, in the Philippines alone, we have a million teachers and I can tell you there's a very wide range in terms of their years of experience, in terms of their passion, in terms of their compensation, in terms mm. of their working hours. Uh, you can be a very smart, very passionate teacher If there's 50 students to a class and you're paid yeah. minimum wage, it's hell. Well, you're not going to work. That's there's physical limits, right? So I think uh, when we talk about access to quality, there is a, there is a, an element of spending, and that's why I think it's the UN SDG set a goal of like you know government should be spending six percent of GDP on, on education. Yeah, uh, because th this is a case where like you know you have to spend to get yeah. good results. You have to spend. So I think these are like the more obvious ones. 
The less obvious ones are around lack of awareness about the opportunities, uh, which is one of the things that we definitely worked on at Education. You know, we would talk to a lot of students and we'd ask them, what do you want education-wise? And it was very consistent. People want to go to college. There are many countries where, in fact, I would say, I would argue most countries by now in 2023, people know that education is a way out, right? Is a way up. Yeah. Um, and so it's not like you're explaining to people the concept like, well, if you're better educated, you might have a better life. Like most people get it. And it's a question of not being able to, to, to access it as opposed to not even knowing that they'd want it. But, you know, you can have a lot of, of information gaps around what opportunities there are. I remember we were speaking to students who were going to like, I would argue, low quality private high school. You know, when you'd ask them, like, what are your thoughts for higher education? And they would just list the university that was down the road. And these are people who technically were going to private school. And yeah. so just having this conversation around, well, you know, what about you think in terms of a radius of like a one to two hour commute? Uh, let's see how many schools are in that radius. So that's one. The other one as well, uh, which I feel very strongly about is around the sense of agency. And it's very, very common. And this is true, by the way, in like the global south and the global north for lack yeah, of a yeah, term. Yeah. When students do what their parents tell them to do. Yeah. Right. Uh, parents have a very firm view on what to study, where to study. Yeah. And then you end up with students taking the wrong course. You know, they're not good at that subject. Uh, it's not a subject that's in high demand in the job market. They don't enjoy it. They end up getting bad grades. They don't necessarily get into a good school for it. So, and I think reversing that sense of, you know, reversing that imbalance in terms of giving students agency is one of the hardest things to do because you're talking about a cultural change. But just a mind shift, yeah. Yes, but just because something is hard doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. In fact, usually the things that are the hardest to change, you know, can possibly have like the most impact. So for me, agency is massive. You're done with it because I'm surprised you yeah. haven't mentioned the quality of teacher or the teacher training. Um, you know, because you mentioned infrastructure, you mentioned... Yes, uh, you mentioned... So, um, sorry, sorry if I didn't emphasize it, but no, when I was discussing the spectrum of teachers, yeah. that includes the quality, yes. Okay, absolutely, yeah. In comparison to other global South countries, you feel Philippines have a little bit of an advantage when it comes to the language. Yes, so to access to access a, a, a certain material and and a level yeah. of quality, and so I would say that the Philippines has a couple of different advantages. Right? I mean, firstly, it's a it's a very egalitarian culture in terms mm-hmm. of gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe in some studies it came as the eighth most gender equal country in the world, ahead of many countries in Western Europe, for example. As a result, you don't have that issue where, you know, education for boys rather than for girls. So that's one thing in which the Philippines already, that's one issue it doesn't have. And that's cultural. It's, that's, that's huge. So it's, it's, it's been a very, and despite 300 years of, you know, Spanish occupation and the very patriarchal system that, you know, colonial Spain brought, it's remained a very gender equal society. That's the first thing I would say. The second one is we were an American colony for 50 years and the U.S. having been a colony itself that fought for independence was a very reluctant yeah. imperial power. And so you saw it in their policies. There's always this guilt around, you know, we, we fought for our own freedom and here we are suddenly occupying this country of 7,000 islands. And so the, the U.S. was uh, had a very different attitude to the Spaniards. The Spaniards were like, we're only going to educate a sliver of the population yeah. to divide and conquer. Yeah, obviously, yeah. The Americans said, you know what, we want everyone to have an education. And so our entire public school system was built on massive U.S. investment after a very bloody war. Of, so you inherited at least a foundation or a base, a minimum base of... More than minimum. They, they set up, uh, you know, many universities. Uh, they set up a public uh, high school system. They made English the de facto national language. language yeah. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, when the Philippines emerged out of World War II, we had a very developed education system and we spoke English, you know, which at the time was an advantage. But now in a world where English is the global language, 
is it is even more than about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The entire Philippine Filipino society is run in English. Filipino yeah. is not a written language. Yeah. That's what people don't realize. Yeah. And so our our constitution is written in English. Yeah. Our street names are in English. Contracts are in English. Kindergarten is taught in English. Yeah. Everything is is in English. Very interesting. What one last question about the impact of education in uh, in the Philippines, and then I'd love to cover a set of other questions. I just want to know, you know, how much you feel you have contributed to the to the ecosystem and maybe with a little focus on the marginalized community and the rural areas and yeah. do, do you after a few years do you feel that you you've done a, your part and and no no <laughs> why, why? no I, and i think so what are the gaps that need to be so i, I think so firstly and it's something I, I i entered the education space you know with a very naive mindset right the the problem of working in finance is you think that the whole world can be solved in spreadsheets the real world is much more complex than any spreadsheet and change takes a long time and to to be in education you have to believe in generational change uh and so i genuinely foolishly thought that i would have quote-unquote mission accomplished within five years it's now been 10 years yeah and i think we've done maybe one percent of what we should be doing yeah or should have done so yeah one percent wow yeah are you hard on yourself now no. As an entrepreneur, are you? Are you, are you... No, I, I don't think we're that. I, I wouldn't say that I'm that hard myself because look, if we had done more than a percent, we would have meaningfully changed youth unemployment rates. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I, I cannot put my finger and say that we have as a company, despite being used by millions of students, that we can already prove eight that... million, right? Just to be a bit more yes. precise yes. to the audience. You, sure. you, so you, every you... year, about eight million students use the platform um, to look up uh, to basically make a more informed choice for their mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've positively impacted most students, but you know, if you if you view success as someone who was on the wrong path or didn't know what they want to do, or you know, weren't able to to get a job, and now suddenly you're able to get a job because they got the right education, I think we have a very very long way to go. But it's I don't think it's about I don't think it's about being hard on yourself. I think it's about seeing that you can have a lot more impact, and that's actually yeah, that's actually very motivating, right? Um, I think if we had mission accomplished within five years, then you know. The kind of people we have on the team wouldn't be staying because, you know, they, from their perspective, they wouldn't be having any impact. So we are having impact. It's just in education, you have to accept that things take Dec- decades. Yeah. Yeah. It's not months, not years. It's yeah. decades. Yeah. yeah. And measure the outcome is is a, is a dump. A very difficult task. Yeah. In some cases, it's impossible. Yeah, well, uh, if someone's doing well, is it because they use your product? Yeah. Or is it because of 20 other factors that yeah. you contributed nothing to? Yeah. But you were where you were just like one of the small positive nudges in their journey. I, I want to make a little, an intersection between the entrepreneurship experience, the product you created with Education, and then some other product you have within Education. And then recently, Respond. one product, you realize that, hold on, this, is, this could be another company itself. For some of the folks who are listening to us, how do you create a company within, within a product? And, and, and what, what's the experience and how you announce it to your team that, hey, guys, I'm creating another company with this product. You manage education now. I'm go- going out to uh, grow Edge, right? Sure. And, yeah. and maybe tell us a little bit more about Edge and, and the opportunity you saw. Sure. So I think to, to answer that question, you have to go back to the hiring of a new CEO for education. So when I started the company, you know, you, you're an employee of one. And so you give yourself the title of founder and CEO, which you know, feels great Thanks. after being like an analyst <laughs> and an associate like, you know, for the last decade. I mean, the reality is you're just a one person, one yeah. person team. And even if you become a three people team, are you really CEO? I mean, it feels yeah. more like you're the assistant and the intern. Um, yeah. But you, know, you give yourself this fancy title. And when I started in 2015, a good friend told me, which I loved, he was like, uh, you will go out as CEO. They're like, 
like you'll always keep the founder title yeah because you start the business that title stays with you whether you want to or not the ceo title there's two ways of dropping it you either get fired by your board or you step down there's only two ways to go as a ceo you you're fired or you resign so no one will take the founder but yeah CEO, but the, the, the but ceo the, the way the mechanism works it out, yes yeah and i remember thinking like oh gosh i don't want to be fired someone else got fired steve jobs <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> and so i remember telling myself i have jokingly well I definitely want to step down rather than be fired. Yeah. But, you know, jokes aside, at the end of the day, the role of founder and CEO is actually very different. So obviously as a founder, you're the shareholder. Absolutely. Um, it's you. It's your passion. You put your name on it, et cetera. But fundamentally, your role as CEO is to maximize the equity growth of the business. And you may be the right person at the beginning, but it doesn't mean you'll be the right person for eternity. And so sure. every six months, I would basically have a council with myself and ask myself, am I still the right CEO for this business? Because even your board may not be able to tell you that. Mm. Right. Only you, I think you can seek advice from many others, but you need to have a very frank conversation with yourself. If you see people out there who you think would be would do a better job than you, then it's your job as founder to bring these people on board. You essentially want to disrupt yourself out of a role from the CEO. At least that's that's the approach that I took. And so I think it was about three, three to four years into the business, I saw that we could use like a, d- a different person to be CEO. And so we looked, it took a very long time, took about 12 or almost 18 months. And then found the right person inside grad, extremely sharp, had worked for multiple like Fortune 500 companies, brought her on for a project. She turned it around, gave her more responsibility. She turned those departments around. And then I, within three months, I had sat down and said, I think you're the next CEO of the business. And then we worked out a transition plan. And so over 18 months, kept building her up and giving her different yeah. responsibilities. And so by the time we announced that I was stepping down as CEO in my fifth year, it was a bit of a shock, perhaps externally but only to people who are not remotely tied to the Gershaw. All our employees, interns, shareholders, stakeholders, clients all knew about this because very early on, I was like, you know what, we're going to be transitioning to a new CEO, Bravo, yeah. you know, by next year, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the person I want you to meet her. Once she became CEO, I actually started reporting to her and my job became, you know, head of growth. It was just to find new growth initiatives for the business. I tried a couple of things in 2021. So I stepped down end of 2020 as CEO. I became head of growth in 2021. Everything I tried failed. So I I won't bore you with the details, but, you know, kept trying something new every four or five months and it just wasn't sticking. Mm. And then when we decided to do tutoring, uh, academic tutoring, so math and English, that started doing quite well in the Philippines. So, you know, so far so good. It then started doing quite well outside of the Philippines and then eventually started doing better outside the Philippines than in the Philippines. And so what was initially meant to be a product grew into being a division grew into just being a completely different business model. Right. You know, if you think about education was built and has been built and is still centered around the Filipino learner, yeah. Filipino student. Edge Tutor is built actually around the Filipino teacher and that teacher then teaching abroad. And so became clear and clear to us that these were two separate companies. And even the people within the company typically were really excited about one or one or the other. And so even though we only announced a spin-off this year, we've actually been operating as separate companies since 2022. Because you realize that a lot of your customers also, it, it was what just, I also love so from this is that there's an element of serendipity because you realize that you've been having people from Poland, US, France, correct, New Zealand, access like your yeah, services, and it's okay, hold on, yeah. maybe that's where we should grow and, and scale. And I think what's interesting is, is just how organic it is. If you had told me 10 years ago that we would find a way of working with Filipino teachers but with an international client base. I would have been, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have fully understood how that would have worked or I wouldn't have necessarily believed in the potential. I would have thought, oh, but like for a variety of reasons, yeah. customers abroad will, why would they do an online pass with a teacher in the Philippines? Yeah. 
COVID and a bunch of other things happen and suddenly they rally. So there's there's really an element of serendipity and there's, there's also a lot that's organic. Like what we're discussing now in half an hour is the result of like years of changes, yeah. mistakes, yeah. learnings. You know, when we were setting up the tutoring business, some of our investors were telling us you should set up as a separate company because even if you're just tutoring in the Philippines, it's a very different business model in the first yeah. one. So we yeah. think it should be run as two separate companies. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm sharing the condensed version here. But fundamentally, if you have a very different business model and a very different key stakeholder, that's better, better to separate. And yeah. yeah, you focus on language, just English. I can not even language English. In- English, just so, English. so purely not not even math or okay. So we do English and math. That's it. And you are selecting the very best of the very best teachers. We so we assembled a team that like has 15 years of experience hiring teachers in the Philippines. Yeah. they've previously hired more than 20,000 teachers for other companies. Yeah. Our ethos, what I told him was like, you know, whatever was your quality control before, make it much, much harder now. Yeah. And remember, we're here to treat teachers well. And so, which is a bit of a different approach than perhaps some of the other companies had. So, you know, we do things like providing healthcare, but we're super strict about who we let in. So, yeah, I think our target is to accept less than 10% of applicants. And right now we accept between 3 and 5% of applicants. So f- some of these folks are in rural areas. Uh, you... Avoid them moving to whatever the city, get away from their family. So, so, so there is, there's some external, yes, some positive externality. So there's, that. A, there's a, yeah, there's a massive impact. So, what we're essentially offering the teachers is a job at a shot at an international career, mm. paid in dollars with interesting career prospects in terms of training, upskilling, career progression, salary progression. For the comfort of their home. I don't, I don't know if the viewers know this, but uh, you know, the Philippines has one of the largest migrant populations globally. 20% of our workforce lives outside of the Philippines. Typically, they have to be separated from their families. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes they won't see their families for years. Uh, it, ha- it has a massive negative social impact on the country, on the country's social fabric. The other thing that you know the listeners may not know is that we have some of the worst traffic in the world. And so, and when we say bad traffic, I'm not talking about a 45-minute commute. <laughs> I'm talking about four hours one way. Yeah. Right. And so giving someone the ability to earn in dollars and work from home next to their kids is a game changer. And so our teachers typically don't come from Metro Manila. Um, 90% of our teachers come from outside Metro Manila. They come from tier two, tier three cities. They come from islands where I've gone for like holidays that I would have never thought, you know, there would be, uh, you know, international level English teachers, but there are. And it's fantastic. And you, you know, you talk to them, they're earning two to five times what they were earning before. So they're very happy. They're very yeah. motivated. I'd love to be able to see if there's any way we can measure the impact on the family, on the economic development of that reason. And that's another topic. I want to make a transition to AI because the business you're in is obviously very much human centrist. And and we see right now there's there's a buzz around AI. AI is going to come and replace Twitter. You'll have your personal Twitter for anything you want. How do you position yourself there and, and... and frankly speaking, do you lose uh, your sleep because of that? So I lose sleep over the impact that AI will have on education and equality. Yes. More than I, I don't lose sleep over the impact of our business ball. I think you will always need human teachers and there's actually a global teacher shortage. So in the Philippines, one of the very few countries in the world to have a teacher surplus. So the demand for our teachers is there. I mean, All our clients know about AI. Many of them are using AI in their operations and they're still placing orders to get even more teachers from us. Mm. So, you know, uh, perhaps all of us are sleepwalking into into this crisis, but it's currently, and I think that's going to hold, people value the human connection that they have with someone that's teaching them. You know, I think we were discussing earlier, there's 
so much knowledge is already available pre-AI, yeah. right? You want to learn how to code? You can learn how to code yeah. without a teacher. You want to learn a language? You know, my mother learned French in nine weeks. No tutor. It's again, there's many things you can learn. The The issue typically is you look for someone that gives you confidence, that brings you discipline. Yeah. And that is something that no amount of gamification can do. I am sure many of our listeners are like me and have downloaded language learning apps and meditation apps and workout apps and many things that either make you do things or teach you things. And we all pay the, the yearly fee <laughs> and every janitor like, you know, I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to come out and, you know, anyway, speaking, I'm not using it. <laughs> just speaking multiple languages and meditating more than the Dalai Lama. Yeah. And then lo and behold, a year passes and nothing happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's, there's a whole role around the human teacher. I think what's interesting for us is we've seen, I mean, people are talking a lot about AI now, but like, like the software we're using for teaching has incorporated AI for years. Hmm. When our teachers teach, it's amazing. They, we've already prepared the lesson plan actually with AI. They come in, they teach, and then the report gets automatically generated. And so for me, that, that massively improves the experience for the teacher and for the learner. So I think AI can augment the experience. There will be, case, there will be use cases where it does replace, right? So for example, anything that's very transactional, like homework help, if you're not trying to learn and you're just trying to basically get the answer to a question, yeah. I think that's extremely vulnerable to AI. In fact, that you've seen in the stock price of yeah. the companies out there. I'm I'm not saying anything new, right? I think a lot of equity research analysts but mm. same. So I think for very transactional knowledge, AI is going to be highly, highly disruptive. And that's the, the short and midterm. You, 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 that's what it's like. You don't, you don't, 18 months, yeah. I had teachers that changed my, I won't say my life, but at least... They did, they did. Well, they changed my, okay, they changed my life or made me really love... They, they changed your trajectory. Yeah. And when, when I... Uh, when I hear some of those, you know, big names of AI today, they're very adamant about the fact that we could have those teachers AI. Like we could have those amazing, inspiring AI that is almost human that is going to give you the same that whatever that excellent teacher gave to you. I, and I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm not fully. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, as much as I embrace technology, as much as I value human connection, I still haven't found my balance, honestly speaking. I'm still yeah. taking my time to to let my exploration, curiosity, and imagination give me a, a kind of a, yeah. oh, th that's my... Yeah, I don't want to have a set kind of... Sure. I think the, the way you think about it is the problem with technologists is they often are a little bit obsessed with the impact that they're going to have, right? And so it's, it's very binary. It's either AI is not going to work or AI is going to take over the world. I have a more of a pluralist approach, which is different channels serve different purposes, there's many different ways of learning English. And now you're going to add an AI tutor as one of the ways. But you have to remember your competition is not just teachers. Your competition is for those who have a higher income, it's travel. Your competition can be, you know, some people don't even bother taking lessons. They just watch TV and movies and listening to music in English. And that's enough to pick up like a very decent level of English. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really, it's going to be an additional channel, yeah. which will have its own plus and minuses. Yeah. There's some great work already done now with AI around correcting accents for example i think that you know that's it's just a, it's just another method another channel for teaching and there's going to be room for different methods uh, but part of the bed that we've made as edge tutor is that there will always be room for teaching yeah and we want to be known as the home of the best teachers yeah and, and it's not to say that 100 of teaching will happen and you guys remember that the biggest competitor to all these things by the way is offline you know so sometimes it's a bit you have this ego chamber between Asynchronous content, live teachers, AI teachers, 
you forget that just so much is just happening physically in a classroom, mm. even post-COVID. And so I think, you know, you, you don't want to have a storm. Yeah, I'm worried about that gap, actually. We're, we talk too much about a, a certain aspect and we, yeah. we, we ignore sometimes the majority of the reality. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, some, sometimes I feel like we focus too much on the buzzy things rather than whatever. But this, I think, yeah. The, cor- the way the conversation should go, ideally, but we don't live in an ideal world, is what are the pain points that we're trying to solve and do we, how do we now solve them? Is it with subsidies? Is it with AI? Is it mm. volunteering? Is it with changing the curriculum? Is it with removing exams? Is it with adding more exams? Like, but it should always go to like, what are you trying to solve? And I think what we should be solving for is how do you reduce education inequality, especially up until, you know, age 18? We've been talking about all this for the past 10 years at WISE, and I feel ashamed that we haven't figured out a way because it's a debate, it's a constant debate without without taking the necessary risk to say we have to try one of these avenues to know. But but it, it, it's such a it's such a difficult matter to just try. You can't just try. So in, in the absence of not trying, yes. we have been just talking in this yeah. kind of cycle of we know that we're not doing great, but we... Uh, we, yeah. we we keep going in circle. Uh, yeah. But look, I think the, the role of people in technology is to try to push the envelope. Um, I've had my very fair share of frustrations trying to push for like very basic solutions through education and now through Edge Tutor, right? Like we still have people who don't think they can learn online or don't think mm. they can learn from the Philippines. I mean, like there's, there's still some basic things, but I wish all the luck to those pushing for more AI in education. I just, they, they, will, they will see that it's a sector that's very traditional. And so your technology can be perfect. Yeah. Your use case can be amazing. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a slow moving sector and you, the sooner you accept it and understand it, the sooner you can figure out how to push for positive change. We have a few minutes left and I do want to have your picks. It is related to AI also, but I just want to have your thoughts on a conversation I had recently with, with Sam Altman and he said a few things and yeah, I would love to have your kind of thoughts on, on, on some claims. So. Mankind can grow to be 20 to 30x more productive with the use of these tools, the AI. Do we, do we need that? So a couple of things. I think one, that's a very white collar view of the world. And so, you know, for sure, uh, there's a lot of overpaid software engineers out there who are getting paid $300,000 a year to create code that was frankly like very uninspiring and very buggy. Can someone now do this for a fraction of the cost with less errors thanks to AI? Yes, and is that something that would be a wonderful development? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I think there, there will be use cases like this. But again, and I don't know Sam personally, so I, I, where am I to judge? But got to get out of your bubble a little bit, right? You know, so just because something will be true for the 1% of the 1% in Silicon Valley doesn't mean that it applies true to all jobs. But I think what is interesting, though, is for the jobs where you get that 20 to 30x increase in productivity, who captures it, right? It can go in many different ways. You can either start saying like, oh, well, software engineer, I was paying you $300,000 a year, but now I can get software to develop software. So yeah. I'm not going to pay you what I pay nurses, right? And let's see how happy people are with that kind of salary. And so that's the first question. Like what happens to people who's, where productivity has massively increased? Mm. Secondly, you know, those who benefit the, mo- the most, is there some kind of redistribution? The, the, it's widening the gap in some sector versus re- some others. Yeah. What's so interesting, you know, I once I was at a dinner recently, and I essentially got the entire table to stop by saying that I was in favor of socialism. 
<laughs> in a in a European <laughs> using a European term. And you know, you, it's it's like I was the ghost of like Stalin and Lenin combined, and I was here to you know destroy the world. But what people forget is like all tax systems are redistributed by nature. And the question is just like how much do you redistribute. So, but, think- but it's funny that most of the Sam Altman and other folks right yeah. now, you, all, all these big innovators. They're talking about universal basic. Yeah, the universal basic. Uh, yeah. So it, that is a sort of a that redistribution of, of the massive. Absolutely. And, and again, there's a lot of arguments pro and con, and like, and this is an ed tech podcast, not a yeah, that, you know, tax, <laughs> tax podcast. Uh, but I think it's all around. There will be massive productivity gains from AI. It's uh, for sure. I mean, like, it's I, I'm I'm not saying anything new here. So it's for me, it's all around like, okay, and how do you redistribute those? You know, how do you reinvest in those that are not benefiting as much? Either because they don't have access to AI or because they're in industries where you can use as much AI as you want, it's just not really going to change much, yeah. right? And so I think for, for me, it always boils, it, look, it's what got me into education in the first place. It always boils down to like, what are you doing to reduce inequality? Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's, that's a beautiful mission to follow. And it's a never-ending struggle because you yeah. always have people who, and it's not about people being evil, it's just like some people are right place, right time. Yeah. Um, others are if you create the innovation yeah. if you're the hub for it if you have a commercial application for it yeah. of course you're going to benefit more and again it goes back to you need to incentivize rewarding growth and innovation but you need to have enough redistribution the world is fair yeah which it currently is absolutely not yeah no look I mean, mo- most of them it's not a question it, it's almost an end because we can we can go on and on but but I think regulation is, is needed and some of some of them they they uh, I, I hope I'm not naive to say some of the people I met recently leading some of these technology. I felt they're, they're, they're genuine about uh, the effort, and I hope it's it's uh, it, it's uh, it's the case. It's a super interesting time. We might not fully comprehend what's happening, but it's happening real time. But it's happening, and it's happening super fast. And this is not a ten-year thing. This is in the next two, three years, we're gonna wake up and we're gonna say, "Oh Lord, lots of stuff has changed." Yeah. drastically and are we really prepared for that or not i, I mean I, I don't think we're fully prepared because the government is is, is not is not up to speed according to me yeah. I, I served i served yeah. in, a, in a government at some at some point in my life and i and i know we're we're more yeah. you know following these trend and we can have another conversation of course about this topic another time but i i just want to end with one question is did i miss one one important question during these 45 minutes it was a very comprehensive conversation. <laughs> I think if there's one thing that I would add, probably around always going back to the the real pain point that you're solving. And I think education attracts its fair share of idealists. And I would count myself in there. And, and it probably, I would say, probably alongside like, you know, healthcare, it's probably one of the industries where it attracts maybe the most idealists and at the risk of generalizing. But the problem with that is you can end up with just a lot of solutions to either problems that don't exist or problems that are not a pain point. Yeah. Um, and I think the question should always be like, how do you balance your idealism for a better world, for a fairer world with human behavior and how that will react to the innovation that you're pushing? Um, and I think that's true all levels of innovation. I mean, I cannot tell you, for example, how many solutions out there, including stuff that we've pushed. Yeah. yeah. I, I told you in 2021, I kept trying to come up with new products and came from a very good place, very good heart. Uh, I thought I had all the data supporting it, but fundamentally, I was trying to push for a product that people didn't need and, yeah. or didn't want. Yeah. And so there was no adoption. So I think that's something we should always be super cognizant of uh, in EdTech. It's amazing to innovate, but you need to make sure you're solving a, a pain point that people want solved. Yeah. And they, that they want to prioritize solving it. 
Thank you for ending on a pragmatic note. It is important to solve real problems at the end of the day. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's great to think about all these big philosophical things, but I think it's just important to just focus on sometimes smaller things to solve. And, I agree. And the addition of smaller things to solve could lead us to get out of your two big things. That's a good way to end. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mercedes. No, it's great. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. <laughs>